Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Western Montana is a really complex fishery. The guides who have been at it for a long time have a vast knowledge of the three main rivers, their tributaries, and the Missouri. And one of those guides is Brooks Jessen of Trout Zula. So, Brooks, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Well, and I was, as we were saying earlier, um, I, every time I went to the grocery store early in the morning to get my cup of coffee, we would always joke, oh, Brooks is at it again. Every morning, without a skip, anytime one of us was at the grocery store in the morning, your vehicle would be there. So I know you have a huge work ethic. You worked really hard. You've been a guide forever. And I'm just really intrigued to hear one of your fishing stories. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we uh, I've worked for a lot of different awesome outfitters in Missoula, and pretty much all of them over the years. And uh, one one guy started giving me a, a lot of trips, and so then I kind of just ended up being you know 160, 170 trips a year sometimes. So we uh, I've cut I've since cut back, and I got my outfitter's license a few years ago, and I don't work as many days as I used to. But yeah, we're we're happy to be out here. Put it that way. What's one of your most memorable times on the river? Well, this one goes back a ways. I've had a lot of crazy stuff, but one that I'll, one thing I'll talk about a little bit is how competitive outfitters are. <laughs> and there are a couple of outfitters and guides, you know, they really, we really want to get our people into fish. And some of the sections around here, if, if you're not lead boat, like first boat, <laughs> the fishing can be pretty hard. If, if, or say, put it this way, if you're fishing behind a boat or two that, puts your boat in the wrong spot or they uh, they just work the water really hard. You can have a tough day if, if you're behind them 
That's just on certain sections where there aren't a lot of fish. And so one outfitter who is pretty sneaky, he'll uh, he'll kind of, I think he pays a shovel guy to lie about where he goes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so the only way you find out where he's at is when you end up on top of him. And so that happened one time. So I'm going to put in at this one spot. I called my shovel guy. There's nobody there. So I get there and here's this guy. He goes, what's going on? He goes, well, you're not. You aren't supposed to be in here. Yeah, well, I changed my mind. I'm like, all right, well, I'll go somewhere else. So where are you going to go? I said, well, I'll go to Miller Creek. Said, all right. So I grabbed my clients and started heading to Miller Creek because I didn't want to put, in, put on behind this guy. And uh, in the meantime, he had another boat going. And he called a guy and said, hey, Justin's going in at Miller Creek. Hurry up and get in ahead of him. <laughs> yeah, serious. So, so I get there, I get to Miller Creek, and sure enough, this other dude, this is 12 years ago, pulled in there. And uh, he and I show up at about the same time. And I'm kind of grumpy. I've worked a bunch. <laughs> and I had a couple boats ahead of me for a couple days that were kind of making my life harder. And this dude's like, hey, bro, I'm just going to row down ahead of you. I go, no, bro, you're not. You're not going to row down ahead of me. <laughs> and so we're kind of going back and forth a little bit. And so I told my guys, all right. We're going to get in the boat and we're going to row. And so don't even think about fishing. And so both of us, we get our two boats in the river and we're working for different outfitters, obviously. And uh, we aren't really talking to each other because we're kind of angry. The two guides are at least me and the guy that I have respect for this guy. He's a good guy, but I just didn't want to fish behind him that day. And so, and I actually called the shuttle in first. And so I have one guy that's really fish needy. Like he has to cast all the time and he's really type double A, I call him. He's up in the front of the boat and wants to cast every piece of water. And I told him, hey, man, just sit there for a while. So we, we both launched our boats, and it was like a crew, a race. So I'm digging hard on the horse. He's digging on the horse. And we're, we raced for, I'd say, almost an hour. And neither one of us, I'm looking over at him, and he's looking at me, and we're just, it's like we got our boats in reverse, and we're just, and I would have stopped. He was ahead of me a little bit, like maybe 100 yards initially. He got a, got a little bit of a hole shot on me. And, uh, and and I would have stopped and fished a couple places, but he put his boat right through the middle of where the where the good, good holes were. So I said, well, I'm just going to row until I catch this guy. And so I'm rowing and rowing and I'm sweaty and I see him rowing. And finally I start to get about, I pull even with him, you know, kind of like a crew team, you know, like Harvard versus, you know, whatever Ivy League school. And I look over and he's like, what the... F man, he looks at me and I'm rowing and I'm sweating like crazy. My clients are pissed because they haven't been able to fish. And this is literally an hour later. And finally, he drops anchor and puts his arms up and, as I row by him. And so I row down ahead, go around the next corner, and there are fish rising all over the place. We just rail fish the rest of the day. So it was, it was kind of stupid, but that's just kind of how sometimes guides get kind of, kind of annoyed with other guides and outfitters. And every now and then we kind of, I don't know. That's just my clients were happy that, that that they caught a lot of fish, but initially they weren't too happy that you know we had a little row race for the first hour and a half of the day. But that's just an example of how petty guys can be sometimes. But at the same time, it's you don't really want to you know show your clients a bad day if 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 you're behind boats. So it's certain sections are different around here. You can't just put five or six boats on a section and expect everybody to have a good day. That way. Well, I imagine you do hit your limit. Like you're out. Like I said, every day I was at the grocery store, you're there. So if you're doing this day in, day out, and you're behind boats and you aren't catching fish, you almost do kind of like, you get kind of Hulk. You're like, that's it. I'm going to get ahead of everybody. And we're going to 
we're going to win. We're going to have you catch this. <laughs> I was going to ask you, okay. you know, um, for somebody who, you know, Justin's always kind of taking me fishing. Um, what is guide and water etiquette? Like, what do you like to see from other boats? Well, I, I feel like uh, I don't like piling on behind other boats. So if a lot of like if you're doing Bell, if you're in the bitter, for instance, um, if you call in a shuttle to say Bell to Steve and you get there and there are three or four guys ahead of you, then I'll go up a little bit. Then I'll go to Tucker and or then I'll go to Victor and then I'll go to Woodside. So I'll keep trying to look for a hole right where I can run run my day. And sometimes you have to move a lot. Like sometimes you'll you get to your sixth spot before you finally find a hole on, you know, where, where you're going to, because I don't want to put on behind three or four guys. It's just kind of my, my MO, but other guys do fine with it. Like they'll let everybody go and fish later, you know, or they'll, they'll, they'll or they'll fish really slow and, and, and you're on a different timetable. So I don't always have to be a lead boat, put it that way. But I think etiquette usually is whoever calls a shuttle in first, if you get there, and you're you're putting on and three or four guys come in behind you and, and they start rowing down ahead of you and say, hey, man, I'm going to row ahead of you. Well, dude, I called in here first. So just just so you know, we're going to be seeing each other on the river today. So don't get pissed if I pass you or whatever. So but you try to do this politely and you don't want your clients to know that you might be kind of a little bit annoyed with somebody. Yeah, trying to find a spot, put it that way. Well, this past summer, Justin was uh, putting us on the bitter route and um, he put the boat in and all of a sudden, as we're kind of putting our stuff in, another boat comes in and drops their boat right next to ours. And Justin was getting super upset. He's like, give me five minutes to move it. And um, I was like, well, I don't, you know, for me, I was like, well, doesn't he need to get his boat in? So he's got to put his boat in and he's like, yeah, but that's just, you got to wait like five minutes to move your boat to the side. And I always wonder um, how that goes. And I didn't know if there's like a silent code of ethics when it comes to getting on the water and letting other people fish certain spots or if it's like first come, first serve. Yeah, kind of a little bit. I mean, you get in there first and and, and the non-commercial guys, like the rec guys, I always, I'm always really polite to those guys. Like you try to not, you know, you don't want to piss off a local guy who has a day off from work and he's taking his kid fishing, you know? So I always try to, and, and obviously we help the guides too and the outfitters, but yeah, it's different here. You know, it seems like there's a different etiquette in Missoula, uh, Clark Fork, Bitterit, um, you know, not so much Rock Creek or the Blackfoot, but you, you know, you People here don't like to pile boats. At least mm-hmm. the, a lot of the vet guides and outfitters have been working for a few years. So we try to try to work around each other, you know, just so everybody gets has a better day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there should probably be a there should be like a code of ethics on the water before you get on the boat. Like, let's all try and enjoy it. We all want to catch fish, and especially with um, the summertime. I mean, it can. Boats can be piled up. You can drive through. I mean, sometimes oh, yeah. we'll be driving nope. to go fishing and Justin goes, nope, nope, not this one, not this one. Cause if it's too many boats <laughs> and then I'm like, well, I want to go fishing at some point. I want to go. And I do want to get home at a, a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Tell me Brooks, uh, how did you get into fly fishing? You know, I, I didn't really start fly fishing until I was about eight, 18 or 19 years old. I worked at Glacier Park. Uh, I got a job working out at East Glacier, Lake McDonald Lodge. And prior to that, my, my mom was from Montana and my dad is from North Dakota, but they met and uh, got married. And I grew up in Ennis, Montana. So that's where I'm originally from. 
And so I did a lot of fishing with my dad, you know, in little lakes and rivers and streams as a small child. And then when I was in, I guess, you know, this early school years, my parents moved from Ennis to North Dakota. And so there I did a lot of walleye fishing and uh, uh, bass fishing, northern pike, and just basically fished a lot. And then when I had a chance to move back to Montana, I did right when I got out of high school. And I uh, got a job in Glacier and I started fly fishing a little bit. Uh, right out in these little creeks that came out of the, uh, uh, you know, the, out of the east side of Glacier Park, which is an amazing place. I mean, it's just so beautiful there. Midville Creek, uh, Upper Two Medicine, Middle Two Medicine. It's just a really cool place to to hang out, put it that way. If you guys get a chance, definitely go check that part of the world out. But So I started fly fishing there. A friend of mine gave me a fly rod and I kind of walked down to the river behind where I worked and started fishing little ant patterns. And another really good friend of mine from Pablo or Ronan, actually, because I lived in Ronan for a few years. He uh, was a really good fly fisherman, and he kind of kind of coached me, taught me how to cast and stuff, and that was 30-some eh, years ago, I guess. But anyway, Glacier, I, yeah, I kind of cut my teeth on those waters out of Glacier and uh, had some experience with grizzly bears there, and it was a pretty crazy place to to learn how to fly fish, put it that way. And, and then I fished on the, you know, the reservation a little bit. There's some pretty good fishing up on the res, and then, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I started, but I learned how to spin fish first. Really, I fished lakes and rivers, and I was a spin guy first, and then I kind of became a fly fishing guy later. I love spin fishing. That's how I learned too, and it was super fun. I I guess I had a lot more success with spin fishing than I do with fly fishing. I know you just said that you had grizzly bear encounters. Have you had grizzly bear encounters while fly fishing? Oh uh, yeah, I did once. It it sucked. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, I. When I worked out of East Glacier, I'd usually work like five or six days a week. And I'd usually get off work around three or four in the afternoon. And I had a day off one time. So I went to the a, a place called Upper Two, Middle Two Medicine Lake. And, and you have to drive onto the park. You drive through the Blackfoot Reservation. You drive onto Glacier Park. You go through, you talk to the park ranger or the warden or whatever you call them. And there are all these signs saying, don't, um, you know, go off the trails. So I grabbed my fly rod and. And I had my wading boots, and, and and at the time I caught a lot of brook trout and a couple little rainbows. And at the time I'd actually keep some of the brook trout because we'd go back to the lodge where we worked at. We had there's like a dormitory, and we'd all stay there and drink beer, and I'd eat, I'd eat some brookies or I keep a few fish and eat them. And uh, anyway, I go in almost to where upper mid upper uh, and lower two medicine lakes kind of come together. There was a kind of a marshy area in, in between, and now there are all these little beaver dams. And so I uh, kind of walked off a trail, maybe 150 yards or so, and I'm kind of bushwhacking it and walking on these beaver dams from one spot to the next. And it's really brushy, and I'm cast into these fish, and I caught you know three or four nice little brook trout. I threw them in my head, a little creel, like an old-school creel. And uh, I'm kind of just kind of walking along, and then I, I see the, uh, the dam willows in front of me move. And then they start just moving a bunch, and then I hear this crash, crash, and I look ahead of me, and I don't know if it was a moose or a bear or what, but it was kind of like that scene from Jurassic Park where the guy's trying to hide from the, the velociraptors or whatever they're called, and I just see this brush coming at me and this great big animal coming right towards me, charging me. And so I, I kind of just, I was in about waist-deep water and I do, by myself, so I dove, and I, I kind of completely panicked, you know, I didn't know if I should yell or play dead or scream or what so I just panicked and I kind of dove to the side and I could feel this thing go by me like I was like okay is it gonna and I could tell it was a bear 
you know, right at the last second. Uh-uh. And uh, <clears throat> is they going to bite me in the back of the leg? Or is anybody going to find me here? All these thoughts go through your head. Where is going to get me? You know, and he just kind of falls towards me. He ran right past me. And so no. I kind of I got myself back up and I could just see where he went, crashing through the brush and stuff. And, and uh, I was just, you know, my heart, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I lost some of my gear. And the, like, holy shit, I just almost got killed by an effing grizzly bear. And so it was my fault because I was a dumbass and I hiked like, you know, probably two, 300 yards off the trail. And there are a lot of grizzlies in that, you know, that corridor where out of glacier there, that mini glacier and uh, that whole area. And so I kind of caught my, caught my breath and walked, uh, ran, basically ran back and I told the warden what had happened. And he was kind of, you know, really angry because as I drove through there, he's like, how was your day? Well, ran into a bear and he goes, well, where were you? And I told him he's kind of pissed at me. And he said, well, I probably heard you out there splashing around and thought you were a calf moose or some type of a thing to eat. And then when it saw that you were a human, then it just kept going by you, luckily, from for me. So, yeah, that was that was a, a shit show of a day. Put it that way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's always kind of curious because you always wonder, like, in those scenarios, when life and death is presented to you, am I going to fight or flight? And I always wonder what I'm, what kind of person I would be <laughs> like, would I fight or would I fly? So I think if there was some bear, I'm pretty sure I would do exactly what you did and just like jump in the water and just like, yeah, it was, it was like waist deep. Right. And I was like completely, I thought we back and kind of, I didn't know what I wasn't thinking. Right. And, and I've had other bear encounters since then. And I stood my ground and, and did what you're supposed to. And, you know, if it's a black bear, I kind of, you know, backed away. And I've had a few bear issues over the years, but that was my, my far scariest one, put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, like you said, Glacier, there are a ton of grizzlies there. And I think also, I mean, they do a pretty good job at the park with, you know, trash and stuff. But with so many people and visitors, you imagine that some things you know, doesn't get thrown away and those grizzlies might also kind of like the, like the smell of it. Yeah. You know, they get, they get annoyed as people. I talked to another warden or ranger up there and he told me that he watched, he was watching bears one day from a distance, like two or three grizzlies with his binos. And he uh-huh. said they were, they were like grubbing or trying to eat berries or trying to do their bear thing. And they, they'd smell something. They sit up on their nose. They'd run down into the creek bottom in the brush and a couple hikers would walk by. Then they'd walk by, and then five minutes later, the bears would go right back out in the open and start feeding again. And that would happen over and over again, this, this warden told me. So, it, you know, if there are a lot of people in the area where there are bears, it's hard for the bear to, to you know, get enough, all the, you know, food he needs, obviously. So I studied wildlife biology at the U, too. And so I kind of dealt with a few biologists and University of Montana. So it was a pretty cool summer, put it that way, working up there. Well, that must also come in handy, having that skill set as a guide. When it comes to like understanding the waters and like what to fish for, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can talk about on a slow day or so. You know, you can talk about the you know flora and fauna, and you know, I like geology too. I have a minor in geology, carrying capacity. Why there are fish here? Why there aren't? You know, what rivers have more fish per mile, and kind of explain to them where they're at and why they're there. You know, a lot of people come to Montana thinking they're going to be trout everywhere on the river. You know, and you're like, dude, they're you know, they're trout are in about 5% of the river. You know, they're in certain spots on this river. And this is a river like what the Bighorn and the Missouri used to be, you know, where there's six, 7,000 fish per mile, you know, at their peak. And then there'd be fish almost everywhere. But the rivers we have around here, these free stones, you know, they're, they're not just loaded with fish, you know, everywhere you throw your fly to. So it's kind of fun to explain to people why they're here and why they aren't. 
Yeah, I love on your website, you have the quote, some days you catch trout all day, some days you catch a few. Try to enjoy both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. It's like, hey, I might be paid to take you fishing, but it doesn't promise you the fish of a lifetime. And now a brief message from our sponsors. YLab Reels provides silky smooth disc drags at a click and fall price. Paired with Mid-Arbor Spool for quick line retrieval, the Flylab family of fishing reels is the best value on the river. With four models to choose from, priced from $99 to $249, you won't find these reels anywhere other than the local CD dealer or at cd-fishing.us. And remember to go fishing. Right, right. And that's what I like about guiding fishermen. Uh, over, I, I used to guide hunters a lot too, and I still guide a little bit of hunting, but fishermen kind of appreciate the whole day for the most part you know you got to put them on fish give them opportunities teach them new things when they show up you know later but uh for the most part people just enjoy being on the river and having trout come to their flies and understanding why they're here so you know you get some guys that are really fish eating and they just want to pull them on trout after another and you kind of try to deal with those guys in a different way maybe take them someplace where like well like you know they're Mo, for instance, back in the day where you catch 50, 60 a day over there, just, you know, growing laps with the indicator rig. So, <laughs> you know, which is a lot of people like that too, but I'd rather have a little solitude more and try to catch fish on dries or at least dry droppers. I don't like the nymphs very much. I'm more of a dry fly guy and dropper guy and a streamer guy. If I can, I can find a guy that likes to fish streamers or, or, or a lady. My daughter and son like streamers. They're both getting good at gripping streamers. So streamers are fun. Anyway, change the subject. Oh no, I love streamer fishing. I think it's so much. I think I can I can throw so much more line out with the streamer than I can with the fly rod. Yeah. I mean, with the fly on, and it makes me look cooler for some reason. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Let it load. Yeah, you could be you'd be hot, happy. Slap it right to the bank, you know. And, and you can fish streamers like a dry fly sometimes, where you fish a big yellow or yellow yummy or you know JJ's or some big flashy streamer that you can see and so you hit the bank with it, strip strip you'll see these fish come off the bank and grab it you know so it's a lot of times streamers are visual and that's a lot of fun when you're when you're seeing these big fish just roll on a chase a streamer off the bank i've even had it where where uh, you're watching your streamer and your streamer just disappears well a brown trout ate it but and the brown trout's the same color as the water so the streamer goes away and like what and then also there he is wow that's cool as hell so streamers are you can be creative with them the more you fish them the better you get a lot of guides guides don't teach their guys to fish streamers very much because it takes a lot of work and a lot of a lot of a lot of our guests don't like to to cast that much you know it's a lot of a lot of you know work for for a while a lot of guys are more dry fly guys but yeah streamers are awesome See, and I think I'm just such an active person. I love streamer fishing because it's constant movement and your arm does get tired. Like after a while, it's almost like when you're working out, you got like a five pound, like this is the easiest thing. And then like 30 minutes later, you're like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done right? my entire life. And so uh, streamer, I mean, in the beginning, I'm like, oh, this is, I'm so good at this. Look at me. And then like 10 minutes into it, I'm like, so Justin, you think we should switch the plot? <laughs> Maybe we should do something different because it is a lot of work. Um, I know you were saying earlier that you're kind of not guiding as much. Is there a reason behind it? Are you slowly trying to get into a retirement mode or what's going on? A little bit. You know, I just, uh, I started guiding in 2001, I guess it's my first year. And, uh, and then in 2007, eight, nine, I was working, you know, from February all the way into 
uh, December, pretty much six, seven days a week, it seemed like, you know, with hunting and fishing, but mostly fishing. And I kind of got, I just worked too much, I think, you know, in around 13, year, around year 13, 12, 13, I was like, you know what, I need to kind of, my shoulders are starting to hurt. I was rowing about too much. And I just, my wife got a different job and I had some other things come up that I could manage my money a little differently and didn't have to work quite as much. And uh, so I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to cut back and work 100 days a year, hopefully. That's kind of my goal, you know, and maybe 90 days. And then once I became an outfitter, I could make a little bit more money, you know, because the outfitters, you know, they take a cut of the guy's wages, but uh, so I don't have to work quite as much and, and and still get paid about the same. But I also wanted to be fresh for my guests too. And, and, you know, you kind of, these people are spending a lot of money to come out here and see you and see Montana. And and you don't want to be the fried guy who just kind of grumpy and, and kind of yells at people when they miss fish and stuff because they're spending a lot of money and you got you want to be there for your, for your guests. And I feel like maybe guys that work too much or put too many days on the river, run so many days in a row after a while, they're just, you know, they're kind of not sometimes miss it a little bit. And I think it's good to kind of know your limits and yeah. And as I've gotten older, you know, I just can't work quite as much as I used to. Well, and plus in case you do need to beat the boat in front of you, you got to have some fresh arms for that. No, it's interesting because I, I do interview um, a lot of guides and outfitters and I always, they always get kind of at the end, they're like, what's the end game? Because um, I think as guides and outfitters, you kind of go through this evolution of like beginning, like let's get the clients, let's get, let's get our, our group of people who are going to take fishing every year. And then I think you get kind of towards the top and it's like, how, when is my, how am I going to retire from this profession? Would you say that's probably true, like an evolution of being a guide outfitter? I think so. You know, a lot of it's hard work. It's a hard job, just physically, mentally, get up every morning, clean your boat, get all your gear ready, have your flies and, and make a call, call a shovel people, find out what kind of people you have, if they can cast, if they can't, matching their expectations, you know. So you know, there's just a lot to it. And so a lot of guides, you know, they work four or five years and they kind of burn out and then they go get a different job. Uh but then a lot of other guides, you know, stick it out and eventually become an outfitter. And then they have people kind of working for them. And it's, uh, I'd say most, I'd say most of the people that start guiding, they probably, I'd say four or five years, six years, about all they really do it. But then there are, you know, a bunch of guys like myself and a lot of other people that, that did try to make it a career or have made it a career. And it's, it's a great career. I mean, you're just meeting awesome people out on the river, but there, there are drawbacks too, you know, so. I remember when I was working so damn much, you know, I just, you know, 4th of July, Labor Day, Memorial Day, uh, all these days, I'd see kids, people rowing boats with their kids swimming and stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I haven't seen my kids in seven or eight days. You know, I'd like to get, take them down the yeah. river. So when you finally get a day off, you don't, you don't take your kids to the river or your dogs because you're so tired. And so I got to the point where, you know what, I need to, I need to be able to have fun with my family and have them appreciate the river and, and take them out more often. And, so about five or six years ago, I decided just to not work as much. So I'm still working 100, 110 days, you know, a year now. And, uh, I, I feel pretty good with that. And I could probably do that another 10, maybe five, eight years. And then I'm not sure what I'll do, I guess, but play it by ear. So <laughs> Maybe just enjoy going fishing by yourself. I remember when I first met Justin, and this was 13, 13 years ago, and um, he kind of came off of doing his own um, outfitting and guide business in Bend, Oregon. And he never went fishing when I first met him, like never. And he was really into archery. And um, then about 
two years after we were together, he's was like, I'm going to go fishing. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, let me, I'll go fishing with you. And then watching him on the river, I was like, wow, why don't you do this all the time? Cause he can, Justin can really throw a line out and he was having so much success. And he said that he got burned out. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the thing that he was like, I didn't even want to pick up a fly rod. I didn't want to look at a fly anymore. And, you know, just like you, he was guiding all the time. And, um, I think it's, it's hard to balance it out because you first off it's a living. So you have to make money and then, um, to on your time off, the last thing you probably want to do is go back on the river that you've just been spending your entire time. So I think it'd be kind of hard to find that balance. Exactly. I ran, I ran into Justin years ago and this is a weird story. Um, he always knew that was a great guy and I ran into him on the Blackfoot and he, I think it was Justin that, this is about when he went and did something else for a while, but he told me, I think that his client got hooked. Like she hooked herself in the eye. Have you heard this story? Yes. Yeah. And oh so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, and he's floating into, I think it was Russell Gates or Harry or maybe Scotty Brown or something. And he's like, my client hooked herself in the eye and thank God I, I pinched the barb on that thing. And he did everything perfect. I think he put the, put the, uh, <clears throat> you know, covered her eyes and got her to the hospital. And I got, I think everything was fine. But like, he was just so professional to take care of her the way he did. And, and we got to take care of people out there. I mean, we people don't realize how, how many perils are out there. And so that when the water's high and you have people that that are, um, you know, maybe harder to get in out of your boat or bigger or, or, or aren't real apt to go up and down and help you, you know, do portages. So you have to really consider your clients are taken care of too. And so I think then if you do work too many days or something you might have you might not maybe think of think of the things that are important does that make sense oh absolutely you miss you you might be too exhausted to take you know like to pinch make sure that it's a barbless hook or make sure that you know you're reading the water because you know sometimes you might go i've been doing this so much i know exactly what's going on but you never know when a log jam has changed or the weather has changed and um have have you ever had any like perilous situations, dangerous situations? Oh yeah, yeah, I have. And you know, I probably started guiding before I should have. Put it that way. I wanted to be a fishing guide pretty bad, and uh, and it was so competitive. And there were these really good outfitters back in the early two thousands that had a lot of trips. And so I I got my outfit or my guide license probably a little quicker than I, I should have probably rowed more. But I learned on the go, and everything was pretty pretty solid. And I became a good rower, you know, after couple of years and luckily had nothing bad happen. But on Rock Creek, I, I guide for an outfitter who has a Rock Creek permit. And uh, <clears throat> there was one guy that used to run his hard boat up there. And I always ran my rock. I always ran my raft on Rock Creek. And uh, I can't remember this one guy who's a really good guy, kind of cocky, uh, young guy in really good shape. And, and he would run his drift boat. You know, he didn't have a raft. And so I'd always run my raft and, I remember I was on Missouri for like four days and I had to go to Rock Creek and work up there. And it was upper Rock Creek, way up on the top or end of it. And, uh, and you know what? I got my hard boat. If this other guy can run, we were working together. If he can run his hard boat in there, I can run mine. And so we uh, put on together, having a nice day. My clients broke their flies off, cast it into some bushes or whatever. So I tried to kind of back into this little back eddy with my drift uh-huh. boat. And there's one log that kind of stuck out at a weird angle. And I thought, well, I could just slide in behind it. Well, it hit the stern of my boat and kind of hooked a little bit where my anchor bracket and the stern, where the bracket comes down. And it kind of twisted it just enough. 
And as I spun the boat around, it pinched it under the log, and the whole boat just filled with water and sunk. Like in a matter of oh. matter of like three seconds. All my shit's floating down the river, like my flies, my my all, my barbecue grill, my cooler. It looks like a yard sale, right? And I spit. I, luckily, <laughs> we went around this corner, and uh, my my one guy went swimming. One guy in the front, he fell out. The guy in the back oh. was smart enough to hop up on the bank, and he was pretty agile, thank God. And so I, <clears throat> I kind of spun around the corner there, and, and I grabbed the one guy, drug him out, and uh, and I looked, and both of my guys were okay. They're on the bank. All my stuff's floating down. My boat's just bobbing down the river, like watching it float away, <laughs> pretty much sunk. Oh. And so, and I feel like the only mistake I really did that day was running my hard boat. Really, I mean, there's hard boat water and there's raft water, and Rock Creek is not hard boat water. I made a mistake. No. But that never would have happened if I and, and Rock Creek's dangerous to rafts too. I mean, there's always people flipping up there and getting in trouble, but you always have to be looking down. But I screwed up there. And uh, so anyway, we come around the corner there and we kind of get our get our bearings. And the other guy came around the corner like, holy shit, what happened? Because he sees us standing there in the bank with no boat. And I'm like, my fucking boat sunk. Pardon my French. I'm, 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 no, no, we gotta go get boat. And so, so we... Uh, Luckily, the boat only went maybe 300 yards, 200 yards, and around a corner, and it's lodged against this log dam in the middle of the river, just rocking back and forth. And so I, uh, we, I hop, and of course my oars were gone, all my gears gone, everything's gone. And so my boat's full, of, completely full of water, and it's just it's sitting there like a big tub in the water. But, and the other guys, all right, we're, we get one shot at this. I'm going to roll you by it. And you're going to have to hop out and hop in your boat and bail it out until it can float. And so. So I'm in the back of the boat. He had his clients on the bank, obviously, and, he, and we rode by it. I hopped out, and then I sat there, and I bailed it out with his cooler or a bucket or something until it started floating again. Then I was able to kind of, luckily, there's a gravel bar, and I was able to drag it down the river and get it to the shore. And then I had no oars, and my spare oar, my oar, everything was gone. And so I asked the other guy, where's your spare oar? And he didn't have a spare oar that day. I'm like, really? And so my yeah. clients just sat there, and this is way up around the Rock Creek. All right, guys, I got to go get some oars. Because it was at a spot where we couldn't, you know, there's no place to pull out his way up there. So I walked to this farmhouse about two miles away and I borrowed some guys' oars and came back and rode them down off the river. And that was my, you know, I lost a lot of gear. My insurance covered my clients' gear because they lost cameras. They lost, uh, you know, their keys, their, their fly rods, everything. And so the insurance that I had covered everything for them, but it didn't cover my stuff. I got some of my flies back. I found them like, you know, down the riverways, but. You know, I, you know, our flies, should I had, you know, four or five boxes, you know, with a thousand flies in each box or five. So I lost, you know, you know five, six thousand dollars in flies and my rods and the gear and everything. So that was a, that was a pretty shitty day, put it that way. But it, so you hear, you know, all these guys that have never sunk or, or flipped a bow and I hope they never do. But it seems like eventually somebody, you know, if you've done, done this long enough, something will happen to you sooner or later and hopefully you get that one out of the way and your people are okay. And so that's kind of what happened. Yeah. What did your clients, were they upset or were they like, uh, I'm sorry? They were a little bit freaked out. One of them was uh, pretty okay with it. And the other one was kind of, he was the kind of guy that probably, um, I don't know, he was, wasn't quite as buff and tough as the other guy. So I think he got cold, you know, and, and oh. he's more of a, uh, you know, not quite the outdoors guy. The one guy is more of an outdoors guy and probably, you know, just and the other guy was more of a guy that probably worked in an office or whatever. And so one guy was kind of cold and shaken up and the other guy was, yeah, let's keep fishing. You know, so 
<laughs> it was it was a weird day. Holy cow! I had no keys either, right? So my cell phone's gone, and so I had to call a, somebody to come up and unlock my truck you know, where my, where I shuttled it to, you know, and get some keys so I could get bring my rig down. To end up, it was so weird. And so I called my wife. Finally, I went to a farmhouse and called her, and, and I had to guide the next day. And so I was like. I called the outfitter and told him what happened. He goes, you want to guide the next day? He goes, well, I guess yeah, I better get back on the horse. Right. And so my wife's running around town trying to get flies and gear and oars and stuff. So I can, well, I had my raft anyway, but at the time I think I only had one set of oars and I just, you know, used them back and forth for both of my drift boat and my raft. And, uh, so it was just a weird day. And the, at the end of the day, they, what an expensive day. Oh my God. It was so, yeah. And it ended even weirder than that. Cause these guys were staying at the bottom of Rock Creek and uh, um, they were like, Hey man, let's go have a drink after this day. And so <laughs> we were able to get their rig down there. I got the key, new set of keys and dropped them off at their rig. And they were like, okay, let's, uh, let's go to where Rock Creek bar there where they had the, used to have the testicle festival. And it was like a Friday night. <laughs> so we go in there and it's like packed. It was weird. By then it was like seven thirty-eight at night. And they had a band playing and stuff. And I just sit down in this chair and I, I bought, like, got a big whiskey, a double crown and coke or whatever. And these, I'm kind of talking about how we survived and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just kind of talking to these guys. And this is, and it takes a different story. This girl that I dated like a couple years before I met my wife, this girl was a really pretty girl. She kind of, kind of crazy. And so we didn't date too long. <laughs> so anyway, but in the meantime, I got married, right? And had a had a had a daughter and a son, and I'd been married about four years. And so I'm kind of just sitting there talking to these guys, and this girl kind of hops up in my lap at this bar and gives me this big kiss, like, like out of out of out of nowhere. And I'm like, whoa! She goes, oh, I'm not gonna say her name, you know. But she goes, well, hey, uh, I'll, I'll call her Mary. Hey, Mary, how's it going? Bricks, I haven't seen you in five years. And she gives me this great big kiss and kind of jumps on top of me and stuff. I would have caught me out of surprise. And these two dudes are looking at me like, why didn't you just say you had like a wife and two kids at home? Blah, 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 blah. And, and so, so I'm like, oh, God, what a messed up day. And so I go, these are my friends. Hey, I will call her Mary. These are my two guests today. I'm uh, Bob and John, we'll say. And, and uh and they're from Seattle and this girl's like, Oh, how's it going? And I'm like, I gotta go, nice seeing you, Mary. It's been a long time. Uh but yeah, I got married, blah 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 blah. It was so good to see you, Brooks. And and so one of those guys asked her to dance. And as I'm like leaving, I look back and they're out there dancing this <laughs> But just kind of the weird stuff that can happen, you know, end of the day after my worst worst boat wreck, people could have drowned and then I ended up, you know, and it, it worked out okay. I called my wife and you know, got home and kinda of, or the whole everything that happened, you know. So she was like, that was a really tough day. But And there she was, like your wife was scrambling trying to get you all set up for the next day. And then she yeah, went yeah. home and it's like, Well, an ex girlfriend just gave me a kiss. I'm sure she was like <laughs> And the girl was like, she kinda of turned into like a biker of sorts. I don't know what the hell, but she you know, I don't know if you know anything about that bar out there, but it used to be pretty Testy Testy. Ugh. <laughs> Yuck. So it was just a weird old crazy day at the end and no, my wife's cool. And, you know, I tell her everything. So that was my one, my first and really my only boat wreck that I've had. I've had a couple other close calls and stuff, but 
you know, how do you get back on the boat, I guess, to say, because for me, I think I'm probably way too sensitive to be a fishing guide because I think I would beat myself up and be like, I'm not going to ever go on another boat. I'm never taking one fishing. How do you get out of that mindset? Like, how did you get back on the boat and take clients fishing? You just have to, you know, say, all right, I'm, you know, I made a mistake. I'm going to be more careful from now on. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I got it. This is what I do for a living. I can't let this thing, you know, and it, and it was a little bit hard to row again. I mean, the first couple of days you're, you think, holy cow, I got to miss this. You're not quite thinking like catch every fish in the river. You're thinking more, uh, you know, what's the most the safest thing here, you know? And so, and Rock Creek is so fast anyway. And I don't think I had to row too many more days up there, luckily, but yeah, I just hop back in the saddle and it just becomes second nature again. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of guys that have had wrecks like that. It's sometimes they don't go to work for a while. And a lot of guys that when they're older, like my age or even in their fifties or sixties, I've heard of a couple of guys that, you know, at the very end of their career, they got their boat stuck in a log jam or flipped a boat in a diversion. And they're like, screw it. That's it. I'm done. You know, so some don't recover from a boat wreck, put it that way. Yeah. It, I mean, it's actually pretty deceiving though. I mean, Justin, I'm learning how to row and Justin's taking me, um, let me row in August and, you know, in August, the water isn't high at all, but when you kind of like go under a bridge, I'm still always holding my breath. I'm like, okay, Justin, I just want to make sure I'm not going to hit anything because it doesn't take too much power to kind of, to hit those, um, what do you call them? The, oh, yeah. The pylons or pillars yeah. or whatever on the bridge. Yes, yeah. Totally. Yeah, you gotta, you and can't it make, makes and me nervous. It's, it's hard. I mean, you got to be good on the orders. And, and I think our guests don't realize that, Pretty much anywhere can be a bad day and they can get in a lot of trouble. Not anywhere, but a lot of places. And we get so proficient at rowing and moving our boats in and out of stuff that our luck, our guests should have confidence in us. But, you know, if there's a log that's sunken a little bit, you don't see it, it could spin, spin your bow out, your, it could kick your oar out of the oar locks, you know, and just for a second, you know, that's usually what happens when people get in trouble is they lose an oar, an oar kicks out of the oar locks or, something just kind of weird happens where they drop their oars for a second to pull, do something, you know, with their fly lines or their client stuff or whatever. And it just takes one look. So when you're in a position where something dangerous is below you, you always have to not worry about anything else other than being safe. This is why you need a guide who's done it for a long time. Cause they get all this, all the kinks out of their, um, out of their belt they're yeah you're, it's almost like you went from white belt to black belt <laughs> so i'd rather go with right. a black belt guide <laughs> than a greenhorn uh brooks if people want to reach out to you they want to start booking some trips with some amazing adventures with no perilous <laughs> dangerous situations what's the best way of them reaching out to you oh just go on my website and then send me an email or give me a call uh, uh it's troutzulamontana.com uh, just like it sounds. I lived in Missoula and I caught a lot of trout. So I just named it Trout Zula. And that's also <laughs> my, my Instagram is Trout Zula. They can get a hold of me there probably. So TroutZulaMontana.com and they can give me a call or send me an email. So yeah, we're a, I don't have automatic booking on my website, but I do have, you just get a hold of my wife or I and we'll, yeah, definitely try to get some people out there. My son's son and daughter help a lot. they run shuttles my son uh, and my daughter does lunches and he was going to row a little bit for me last year but COVID year he didn't get his guide license so 
you might get his guide license this year. We have some, you know, a few bookings coming in and stuff. So we're just, my wife helps a ton. So we're trying to, it's kind of a family business, you know, we're just trying to not be huge, just put a boat or two here and there. And I like use, you know, Justin works for me every once in a while. And we're just trying to, trying to keep, keep ourselves busy and maybe do a couple boats here and there. But, but my, my, I'm a small outfitter and guide and, you know, I don't want to be, put a ton of boats out there. Just that's not our MO. So. But thank you. I love it. A family that um, fishes together, guides together, stays together. I like that kind of whole family unity thing. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, Brooks. And um, maybe I'll be waking up this in the mornings and seeing less of your car over in the fresh market. <laughs> Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at the The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room. And we'll see you down here next week.